I think we just can't focus enough on the importance of of truck livestock trailers and washing and disinfecting. I think it's a terribly weak link in our systems. And I know talking with other veterinarians, you know, it's one thing what we say we're doing, and it's another thing what we're actually doing. And we, we're, we're leaving ourselves wide open there, I think. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Just All, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Merck Animal Health, driven by prevention. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every Pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is about Zinpro. Since 1971, Zinpro Corporation has focused on one thing, trace mineral nutrition. As the most research-proven organic feed trace mineral products in the industry, Zinpro Performance Minerals deliver performance and profitability to swine operations around the globe. To know more, go to zinpro.com. Hello and welcome to Swine It Podcast. I'm Laura Greiner and today I have with me Dr. Larry Roof from Swine Veterinary Service. Larry, it's a pleasure to have you on today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Laura. It's uh, the sun's out, the snow's starting to melt and uh, spring's on its way. Wonderful. Perfect. Wonderful. Well, we're so happy to have you here and, and we know you're an experienced swine veterinarian and so we look forward to having a great discussion today. Um, about some of your wisdom that you'd like to share with us. Um, I think to get started, the best thing to do is just to have you go ahead and, and talk a little bit about how you got involved in pig production and how you got to where you are today. Okay, great. Well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm probably one of the more seasoned people you've had on your broadcast. Uh, I grew up in uh, just south of Indianapolis on a small farm, had 4-H pigs uh, like, uh, like a lot of people at, at that time on small farms. And I got interested in pigs that way. Went off to Purdue, uh, graduated from veterinary school in uh, 1979. Uh, I also got a bachelor's degree in animal science during that seven year period that I was in uh, at the university. I came out of veterinary school like, like most veterinarians at that time and went to work in a mixed practice that was mostly cattle and pigs. Uh, Greensburg, Indiana, where that practice was located and where I still live after all these years was uh, real heavy pig area. So I had a great opportunity to, to work with, with pig farms right off, right off the bat. And, you know, it was kind of a fire engine thing, solving problems, but you know, the, the industry was changing at that point. Uh, you know, it was going to see a lot of change later, but it was already starting to change. You know, farms were getting a little bigger. And at that time, a big farm was four or 500 sows. And uh, so anyhow, in 1984, 
I decided to start Swine Veterinary Services, which was 100% swine practice. And at that time, that was pretty unusual. There, there were not, you know, there were some veterinarians that were doing kind of all pigs within some larger vet uh, practice, you know, situations. But there weren't very many that were just saying, I'm, you know, if the phone rings and it's not about pigs, I'm not going to do anything with it. So, so I started that in 84. So that was, uh, that was kind of the start of that. Uh, over the next 30, 35 years, I was fortunate to have a couple of, uh, they were young veterinarians when I hired them and they're very good veterinarians now, Dr. Dennis Villani and Dr. Matt Ackerman. I know some of your listeners will know those two. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting for about, uh, like I said, for about 30 years, the three of us, uh, we oversaw about 2% of uh, the swine produced in the US, you know, as our clients grew and as you all know, in the 90s, the industry started changing multi-site production. Um, we just kept growing and growing as well. So that was that was kind of what we did. Sure. I think that's a wonderful story. And I think so many of us can relate to that. That you know, in the 19 late 1980s, early 1990s, we saw this transition, not just in the swine industry, but also with our veterinarians and, and their practices. And we did start to see more of these these types of, of groups coming together and uh, I think it's been wonderful for the the swine community to have a series of you know expertise right there in their backyard, if you could, if you would say. Um, so, Larry, um, today I think we want to kind of hear from you a little bit about the wisdom that you have, or some things that you think are important for our um, viewers to hear. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, just some ideas of of what it takes to have a good operation wean to finish in terms of pig production. Yeah, that's great. I think it's uh, two things I, you know, we, we've kind of talked about that we discussed a little bit. One kind of around observation, you know, to be a, a really good veterinarian, you need to be a good observer. I always tell people that, that um, that's the skill. Some people are, are more natural at that, some need to develop that, but observation is, is so key. And I, I got thinking a little bit about, um, Three, three little stories I wanted to share today uh, clinically. One of them involves me, but the other two don't. But I think they, they really illustrate veterinarians and, and important observation. One, there was, when I first got out of school, there was a veterinarian in the northern part of Indiana. His name was John Bush. Actually, his son, Randy, still practices in that practice. And, and Dr. Bush was just one of those veterinarians that you know, probably if you gave him a post-mortem knife and a, and a thermometer, he could probably tell you exactly what was going on in pigs. You know, just a really unique unique skills. Uh, they practiced in what was probably the largest pig county in Indiana. And uh, right when I got out of veterinary school, we had a really persistent scour problem that was showing up in, in uh, piglets at about a week of age. And it, it was messy and it didn't always kill a lot of pigs. And but it really caused problems and antibiotics didn't work and things like that. Long story short, Dr. Bush saw this problem and he just kept telling the pathologists at Purdue, you know, this is different. This is not typical scours. This is different. There's something going on. And he, he helped push them to, to find coccidiosis in, in weak old piglets. And, uh, you know, we don't see it as, as a big a problem today as we did back in the early 80s, but it was a huge problem. And I think it it just proves the point that here was this really seasoned, experienced veterinarian, and he was observing something 
that he knew was different. It, it was not just what he'd been seeing all along. And I, I think it really illustrates the importance of observation. I think that's a, a great example. And certainly we've seen that with some of the evolution of, of newer viruses coming out, like our PCV3 versus PCV2. People are noticing some differences perhaps than what they were used to. But in that terms, Larry, I think it's very easy to say, be observant. What really do you use to define observant? You know, what, what are some key parameters that we should be thinking about every time we walk in that barn to start to identify or be able to communicate to somebody what's different? Now, I, I, I still think, and, you know, I, I teach young veterinary students this. I um, will talk maybe a little bit later about my research barn, actually where I'm sitting here today. I have high school students that work there. You know, we start with teaching them what normal is, just like we got when we were in veterinary school. You know, you, you can't understand abnormal till you really understand normal. And uh, I, I encourage people to find really normal, healthy pigs to go learn on. You know, go, go find high health status pigs and just see how healthy pigs can be, you know. And, and I think that's the, the starting point for all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that one's a great one. Certainly, if you don't know what abnormal is, you're not going to be able to identify it. Yeah. What about records or um, daily notes? What, what should people be doing in terms of, of doing that? I think we need to, you know, we, obviously, we're going to talk about mortality in a little bit, mm -hmm. but we, we need to know... Um, you know, what, it, what is the normal for the barn, for the situation that the barn's in? Uh, we, we need, so we need to be tracking mortalities. We need to be tracking sick pigs. I don't think we track morbidity as well as we should in barns as far as pigs that we treated, that kind of thing. I don't always think that gets recorded and paid attention to as much as it should. Sure, sure. How about um, when you work with producers and Biosecurity doesn't allow you to get to their barns, but they're calling you up saying, hey, I have a problem. Um, how do you feel about pictures? Do pictures help you as a veterinarian? Are they not as useful? Um, videos, what kind of things should we be thinking about if we can't get our veterinarian there that day, but yet we feel like something is wrong? I think photos and technology really enhances what we do. We still have to be careful as we move forward that we don't see the pigs some though, because I know everybody watching this has had this, this thing where somebody called you up, told you something was wrong. You got thinking about what probably was wrong. You knew the farm. And then you said, hey, could you send me a photo? And they did. And the photo comes and you go, oh, that wasn't what I was thinking, you know, and it was clear what it was. And so I think we've all had that. And so it can enhance what we do, but we got to make sure that we don't get in this habit of saying we're not going to see the pigs. I think that's a great example. Uh, I think it's um, an example I had one time walking in a barn was pigs looked like they had streptococcus and so they were strepsuis. They were laying on their sides. Um, but as we approached them and we started looking at them, it was actually different. And so we found out later it was enterovirus or yeah. you know something completely that we don't think about normally in a barn, but it, it definitely was there. So I think that's a great example that you're sharing. Um, you said in your, your talk there that you had two other examples. Do you want to oh, share another one? Well, my second one, I'll save the one with me for the third one. The second one 
many of your viewers would know Dr. Kerry Kefaber. And uh, Kerry's kind of like me now. He's a little bit semi-retired, but still working. And um, Kerry was, uh, had his own swine practice in Northern Indiana. And back in 1988 or 89, he was called out to a farm and um, to see some sows that were off feed and aborting. And uh, I remember he told me later, he said, when he came back from that farm, he said, I knew it wasn't pseudo rabies and I knew it wasn't influenza, but I didn't know what it was. Mm. And of course, what it was, was PERS. Uh-huh. You know, it was the very first, you know, Kerry saw some of the very first PERS in the United States. And within a short period of time, a week or so, he was seeing lots of cases of that. And I just always thought that was such a great description. I knew what it wasn't. I, I didn't know what it was, but I knew it wasn't what we were used to seeing. You know, and I, I just think that's another example of a veterinarian being a really good observer, you know, really paying attention. Yeah, absolutely. That made me think of um, diagnostic trees or, you know, something of that nature. Does it have this symptom or that symptom? And then how does it fit down into potential disease categories? How often do you use that or would you recommend our veterinarians to use that? Or do you think that causes us to get a little bit blind in our, our diagnosis? I think we can err on both sides. There are times I say to myself, Laura, I ought to pay attention more to a diagnostic tree than I do. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that I make that mistake sometimes trusting my judgment, you know, and uh, I, I think they're really valuable. I don't think we have to go to them every minute. I think they're particularly important in those problems we see that aren't fitting into a neat box, aren't clear cut, where we say, okay, we really probably need to go back to square one and and look at all the possibilities that might be leading to this particular problem. You know, it's not real difficult to walk into a finishing barn and see erysipelas pigs and know that's erysipelas. But some of these problems that we're dealing with now in pigs, you know, that those diagnostic trees, I think, can be pretty valuable. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, really, yeah. yeah. So my third story. Yes, thank you. Story, okay. <laughs> so this one involved me. And interestingly enough, it was at the same time Carrie was uh, seeing PERS. I woke up one morning to two clients calling me with piglets dying in the fairing house, and it was pseudorabies. Now, the reason that was interesting was because there was no pseudorabies in Southern Indiana and never had been. Oh. And so all of a sudden we had two cases of, of uh, two farms that were a mile apart. Uh, and you got to remember, this is in the late 80s, no multi-site production, feral to finish farms, people, trucks, stuff, not moving back and forth. And you wake up that morning and uh, two two weeks later, the number of cases was up to about a dozen. So all of a sudden we went from none to a dozen. Now, I I, I tell people this, uh, you know, I started playing junior epidemiologist a little bit because everybody was like, where did this come from? Where did this come from? And, you know, it's a longer story than I'm going to tell kind of, but but the reality is by by the end of a couple of weeks, to me, it was obvious that it was blowing through the air. Okay, that it was aerosol spread. Now you got to remember, at that time, most people thought I was crazy saying that. Okay, and and 
I'm crazy on some things, but this wasn't one of them. And and there's there's a whole bunch of interesting things to this. We we got together with some people from Purdue and we ended up writing, you know, practitioners don't write papers very often, but we actually wrote a paper on aerosol spread of pseudorabies that appeared in the American Veterinary Medical Association Journal in 1991, okay? That paper is so old that it's never cited in aerosol transmission stuff because it, it was so old. But here's the real take home. Oh, there, there are two take home messages. One, observation's important, okay? And I was lucky in that I had a totally naive population area. Number two, I knew all the farms that were involved. I was doing the work for all of them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so to me, it was like, wow, this really looks like something blew down the road, okay? Mm-hmm. But here's the interesting thing, and, and I really think is another one of those lessons for all of us as we, we get trapped in our silos. So we go to a, a meeting where they've, Purdue has helped me pull together uh, some veterinarians, an epidemiologist, a meteorologist, and we're all sitting down and I, I'm telling this story and I'm building to this thing where I'm gonna propose this big theory that I think this virus was blowing down the road. And when I said that, the, the meteorologist just looked at me and said, well, of course it did. it kind of of let the air out of my balloon, you know? And I said, said, what are you talking about? And he he goes, well, of course, particles. Well, long story short, particle, uh, blowing particles through the air, all that kind of research and studies were done on that back in the 1950s with nuclear fallout. And, uh, you know, this was not new stuff to those people. Here we were swine veterinarians thinking, oh, this is really... We've really some breakthrough stuff. And, and for me, that lesson was, we need to make sure we don't get trapped in our little silo that we play in all the time. There are answers sometimes to our problems. They just don't happen to be in the veterinary world or in the pig world, or in, they may be somewhere else. I never forgot that. I, I've always reached out to other fields because of that experience 30 some years ago. Mm-hmm. I think that's a wonderful example. And we we talk about it a lot when we start talking about vaccine technology and some of the other things that we do in the swine industry that why repeat something that's already being done in another part of some other industry or some other health system? You know, let's just keep keep the direction going. So I think that's a wonderful, a wonderful point to remind people is not to get stuck in our own little mind or own little world and and to look for those answers, maybe in an unconventional place sometimes. Right, and, and, and I always remind people about aerosol spread. Um, you know, it doesn't happen with all pathogens. You know, it, it, it appears, you know, my experience would be that, you know, pseudorabies does, PERS does, but as an example, I, I've been going to, uh, I, I do work uh, in China. I've been going there since 1997, actually. I do work for a company called CP. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I've been going there for 20, almost 25 years now, but, but anyhow, you know, my most recent trip over there with ASF and everything going on, you know, it would appear that's a virus that doesn't really aerosolize very well, you know, that, so I think we need to always remember that, that some of these pathogens are more conducive to aerosolizing than others. And we shouldn't just automatically say, oh, it blew down the road, you know? Right, right. 
No, I think that's very fair. Um, that just brought up a question for me, actually, as you were talking, uh, as you were discussing your example there and you were talking about lessons learned and, and identifying how transmission occurred from point A to point B. We've seen that here in the United States, right? We saw that with PED when it came through and everybody was trying to sort that out. We do it every year with PERS and, and how PERS is moving through a region. Uh, and then you threw in ASF. So that was actually going to be my question is as we start thinking about potentially the next disease coming to the United States, which we certainly hope is not a foreign animal disease, but how do we start to take some of that knowledge that you're gaining in areas like China that have been afflicted with ASF? How do we take that information and help people start to build that knowledge base ahead of time as far as transmission routes and geographical spread? And we're talking about regional shutdowns and, and having our safe zones and so forth. But what knowledge can we do that's very practical for our, our practitioners and production people today? I, I think, uh, you know, we talk so much about biosecurity. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of it is just talk. It's not action. And, and part of the reason is good biosecurity is really hard and it costs money. And more importantly, well, more importantly, it's inconvenient. Mm -hmm. When there's a foot of snow out here, it's, it's really hard and inconvenient. Um, I, I tell people that we, we're not, you know, PED proved this uh, in 2013 and 14. Our truck washing is not near at the level it needs to be. And my experience in China would be that part of the reason for the really rapid spread all across that country was really there was no truck biosecurity in, in most places. In uh, some there were. And uh, I think we just can't focus enough on the importance of, of truck livestock trailers and washing and disinfecting. I think it's a terribly weak link in our systems. And I know talking with other veterinarians, you know, it's one thing what we say we're doing and it's another thing what we're actually doing. And we, we're, we're leaving ourselves wide open there, I think. I think that's a very good take-home message for everybody is to consider to look at their biosecurity programs and, you know, we talk about the snowball effect with transmission of PERS on wheels and PED and so forth. And so, again, I think absolutely work on our biosecurity is a very good take home point for yeah, our listeners know, I, today. This, my research barn here is a small 500 head research barn. And I, I, we, we actually tour a lot of people through here for some of the projects we're doing. And I, I tell people, look, it only takes once. It only takes one break of something. But I said, I really don't, I don't get overly concerned. I mean, we, we follow our protocols to let people into the barn. I said, we follow our protocols for the feed trucks that come to the barn. But I said, I, I'm just telling you, when the hair on my neck stands up is the day we get wieners and the two days that we sell those wieners off in two semi loads. And my truckers that I'm fortunate enough to hire do a great job, you know, but when a, when a livestock semi truck pulls up to my barn, it just scares me to death because I know that other than a pig, that's probably the most likely way something's going to get drug in here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's a very good point. In addition to the discussion about biosecurity and being observant, you know, we can also put in their mortality, right? So 
we're, we're clearly talking about disease management and disease identification, because the sooner we identify a disease, that means we can put a treatment plan in place to try to minimize its impact within a facility. But what are some key things beyond just being observant and practicing good biosecurity that you think are important for that wean to finish mortality? Yeah. So, so I want to share some numbers with you to help kind of set the stage with, with this just a little bit. Um, we, so we have this small research barn here. We're very lucky. Um, we bring 250 nursery pigs in at a time. And uh, we're fortunate they're, they're PERS naive, so they're very healthy, you know. And I looked at the last eight years worth of data uh, for our, our mortality rate. And our wean to finish mortality for that time period uh, was 3.65%, okay? Now I'm, I'm telling you this, uh, if I was gonna brag on somebody, I'd be bragging on my students that work here, not me. But I, I say this because this is what's important about that number. High health status, PERS naive, 25 pigs to a pen, normal square footage. So they're not, they're not baby, they're not in some kind of research thing that way. They, they get fed the budgeted diets, so they get fed the right diet based on their weights. Uh, but, but when we look at those pigs, those mortality reasons, that 3.65%, almost none of those pigs could have been prevented or saved, okay? So when we set mortality targets, zero is a ridiculous number to propose to somebody. And, and I know as veterinarians, we know that, and it's production people, we know that, but we need to remind sometimes the bean counters that, you know, that is not gonna happen. And, and, and I use this example of, okay, under really pretty well controlled situation, we can't get it much less than three and a half percent because it's things like broken legs, unknown pigs that drop over dead. It's all, uh, you know, it's all those kind of things. So when we set these targets, that's the first thing we need to do. Number two, I was looking at MetaFarm's data and uh, their average uh, wean to market was 5.19. So pr pretty good, okay? But I also saw some data about three months ago, but it is a lot of animals. And the average mortality was 13%, okay? And, and here's what I believe. I believe, you know, our sales uh, industry is getting a lot of attention about the mortality rates, and it should. But our wean to finish has a lot bigger problem, I think, than we're acknowledging in our industry. I think it's a lot worse. I think it has to do with a whole bunch of things, and we can talk about those. But, I mean, think about that, Laura. 13% in a large, uh, a large data set of pigs. That's terrible. That is a lot. That is a lot. So of that, how much of that do you think is something that we could minimize just through better observation? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot. And I think as, as an industry, we have said we can't do this and we can't do that. But I think we're going to have to rethink that and say, OK, we can't. And I'll, I'll tell you some things that I think are important. Number one. We, we've got to start off with good pigs. Now, there's two kinds of pigs that come to a farm. You know, there's, there's really healthy pigs, you know, that we can kind of predict these are, these are good pigs, like, like a PERS naive system, as an example. And then there's pigs 
that are coming from not such a good situation, like a PERS positive. So we have to look at those as two different groups of pigs, and we have to establish what we think is, is targets for those two different groups. But irregardless of those pigs, we have to set those pigs up to succeed. I'm a big believer that we don't do enough sorting of pigs on arrival. I've read all the, the research work that's been done that says you don't need to sort pigs. And that's fine if other people want to have that opinion, but that's not my opinion. We sort all our pigs when, when they come into the barn and we do it real simple. We, we take the bottom 20% goes to the pins to the right and the top 20% go to the pins to the left. And on a typical group, with a three-day or four-day uh, uh, weaning age average. The, we have 10 pins here. The lightest tip pin will weigh 10 and a half pound and the heaviest pin will weigh 16 pound. And there is a huge difference between those two pigs. As you know, I'm not, I'm not telling anybody stuff we don't know, but we take what we know and then we totally ignore it. And, I, and I'll, I'll give you a little example that's kind of fun with that. You know, because we do hand feed those pigs in the nursery as far as recording the diets every day and we budget everything, the heaviest two pins of pigs in that example I just gave you will start on their next diet five days before the last two pins will. Five days, okay? So, so if I put those little pigs in with those big pigs in a pin, who gets those first pellets? You know? Yeah. Now, we know, we know this, we, we know this, but we don't do it in practice. We're setting those pigs up to fail mm -hmm. and particularly our compromised pigs. I think that's a very good point. Um, There's something that I always preached when I was working in our wean to finish barns as well was those first three weeks are so critical and really it's the first three days, yes. right? So what are some things beyond just sorting those small pigs that we should be considering that will help reduce that mortality in that population? Because I would assume that a lot of our mortality is occurring in that population, but I honestly haven't looked at records recently to, to see if that's the case. Maybe you can shed some light on that too. Our, our experience here, and, and again, I, I like to throw numbers like this out so that people can go, hmm, I haven't thought about that. Mm -hmm. Let's Let's look at our, our numbers, because again, we have kind of a unique situation here. Yeah, we've got some, we've got some very low mortalities, but it's interesting, on average in the last eight years, we've treated 8% of our pigs in our nursery. 8% received some, an antibiotic for some reason. And, and I, I would tell you this, that if our listeners followed me around, I do all the treating in these pigs, okay? The students may say to me, Larry, there's a pig to look at in pen two, but I make the decision. And I think if you followed me around in a new set of pigs, you would say, you know, Larry, you don't over treat and you don't under treat. And historically, that's what we found is 8% of pigs got some kind of treatment in a PERS naive situation. I think that's really interesting. And I'll tell you where I got that from. I was at an ASV meeting and I heard a veterinarian in an antibiotic free flow discussing their percent treatments. And even though we record all of our individual treatments and we had all that data, this was about five years ago, I had never thought about it in relation to what percentage of pigs we were treating. And when I heard her say that, I thought, well, I'm gonna go home and look and see what ours is. And uh, so that 8% is, is what we treat. And, 
And this is in pretty high health status pigs. So that's pretty interesting, I think. So that's one way to reduce, reduce mortality. Sort those pigs right, get the right feed in front of the right pig and treat the pigs that need treating. I, I think that's really key. Absolutely. I think those are great discussion pieces. What about in the finisher side? So in the last, I would say, 15 years, we've seen this increase of mycoplasma, hyosynovier, you know, the lameness that comes with it. And more recently, I've heard some increasing talk again of some concern with late finishing lameness that doesn't really look to be associated with hyosynovier lameness. And I think we're all still trying to get to the bottom of it. But what do we do with those pigs? Because there's a lot of money yeah. sitting there in that barn at that point that we just don't want to risk missing out. But how do we we better prepare ourselves for that? Short term, there, there are challenges because, as we all know, treating those animals has never been great response. I mean, that, that's that's been a real challenge. I think the other thing that we need to, as as an industry, look at is we need to ask ourselves how much of that lameness is really infectious in nature and how much of it is structural in nature. And I know that's a, a, not an easy thing to sort out, but we have to look really hard at the structure of our animals and make sure that we're, we're selecting and we're propagating animals that are really sound structurally. Uh, not an easy thing, but I think we can't ignore that as far as the impact. I think it's too easy sometimes to just say, oh, that's infectious. And, and I think we need to rethink that just a little bit. I think that's a, a very good thing to take home. And remember, I know this is, the, I'm curious to see how the late finishing lameness plays out as to what some of our causative agents are. Um, but like I said, we're just kind of starting to get into it to try to figure out what else might be there. Is it infectious? Is it structural? Is it nutrition? Um, you know, I'll throw the nutritionist under the bus today since I'm sitting here. So. There you go. I'll let you do that. My, yeah. my nutrition friends uh, will be happy I didn't make a comment. So. That's right. That's right. I can joke between the vet and the nutrition, right? The, the other thing that is a challenge for us, Laura, and, you know, I always say if within our own family, we can't air out our dirty laundry, we, we'll never solve the problems. You know, contract finishing is not going to go away. It's it's the way the industry is, but it has not been conducive to lowering mortality because the standard of care is not as good as it ought to be. And and we, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people in our industry that are going to be silently nodding their head when I said that. And we don't always like to talk about those kind of things, but it is a fact. And so if we want to improve mortality, we've got to do more training and more conscious uh, identification of where our bad barns are and where our good barns are. And I do think over time, technology is gonna help contract barns because I think we're gonna have, you know, whether it's Fitbits for pigs or, you know, monitoring systems that I think are gonna help us. But, you know, I would, I would encourage people that whenever you have a mortality problem, you have to look at the people taking care of the pigs every day and is the amount of care really being done. There's a point in this, I remember um, 
one of my partners said this one time, we were discussing a PERS outbreak. And look, we've all we've all been there and seen the discouragement and, and all that that comes with that. And he said to me, how many did they lose? And I said, well, in the nursery, 35%. And he just looked at me, he goes, well, they weren't doing anything, were they? Well, he was right. You know, look, they weren't going to take it to 10%, but there was an amount of treatment and care that would have maybe saved five or 10% of those pigs. And I, I think it's important that we don't just give up in those really difficult outbreaks. I think that's a very interesting thought. Is there anything, Larry, in your mind that we can do to help those contract growers? Um, you know, we used to explore this discussion a lot. Is it incentive? Is it training? Um, you know, do you have any thoughts on what seems to connect most with some of the contract growers you work with? It's it's hard, you know, because what happens is it becomes a job after three or four years of the barn's not new and shiny. It's hard work. There's five thousand pigs out in that barn, and I it's it's just difficult. You just try to motivate as much as you can, and emphasize the importance of that day to day care on the outcomes that come out and. As you know, incentives are difficult to do. I've written them. I've written bad ones. I've written ones that didn't work. Uh, it's hard. It's it's very hard. I think that's very, very good insight. Um, one other thing I wanted to bring up shortly is we were talking, I want to go back a little bit. We were talking about observations in the barn and records and updating and so forth kind of earlier in our discussion. What is your thoughts on monitoring daily water intake and keeping a record there? Is that something that you encourage your producers to do? Well, uh, let me tell you, I'm, I'm a rookie at this. So I'm going to share my, my rookie knowledge here. Okay. So um, first of all, we all know water is important. We've always said that we kind of always believed that water flow was important. You know, that if, if the, you know, the old saying, what's time to a pig? Well, it turns out a pig won't stand at a nip of water all day long to be productive. They'll drink enough to be okay. So we knew, we knew that, but we really didn't follow it that much. And, and I was as guilty of that as anybody. We put water meters here in our research barn a year ago. I have a grand total of four uh, groups now that I can actually look at the water consumption. And, and I'm just trying to build some normal curves now that make me feel comfortable as to what that ought to be. I think as an industry, we have not shared and talked about that enough as to what it, what should these intakes look like, particularly as you mentioned earlier, Laura, in that first three to seven days. Uh, I'm just now getting comfortable with, again, my, my sample size now is a grand total of four nurseries uh, groups. And I'm just starting to kind of look at that and go, okay, that kind of looks like what happens in the first seven days. And again, I'm using that because those four groups were all apparently normal. I mean, health wise, they were normal and everything. And so I'm just trying to do that. And I think the more we as an industry can share some of that water data, I think it's, I think it's pretty important. I agree. I think one of the challenges I always saw on the barn was we were really good at writing it down every day, yeah. but it stayed on a piece of paper. Yes. And, you know, Marcy and I were talking about this last night with software. It would be really nice to have the ability to do that. And I know some of our, 
our newer equipment is coming out with the ability to just be able to pull it up on your phone and we don't look at it till it's too late, right? Yeah. You know, I, I look at mine almost every day remotely from the barn because it it tells me, you know, what that number is. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I printed these up at the end because my system will will generate that. And actually they're laying in the other room, but uh, I've got them laying out there because I laid them out on the table to kind of look at them and just think about them a little bit, you know, even though they all look kind of the same. Um, I think it's a big deal and we need to really dive deeper into this. I think the same with treatment records. Yeah. Again, I bet if you followed your barn over four turns, you would see patterns as far as when pigs needed treatment, assuming they all came from the same source every time yeah. and had similar health status. But, you know, I think as production systems and independent farmers, they can do some of that. It's like you said, when we get into the contract growers, they'll do it. They'll write the information down, but they probably won't upload it into software, scan it into a system unless, you know, we have it readily available for them. So I think there's some progress that we probably need to think about as an industry so that we can do a better job of using those records. Cause I think that would help with our, our post-wean mortality. Absolutely. And, and, you know, all those things put together at the end of the day, doing lots of post-mortems on pigs that die really helped tell the story. And I can't emphasize that we have to post lots of pigs if we really want to get to the to the root of what some of these problems are. And in some cases, it may not be one thing. It may be two or three things that are that are leading to that. So I just think you got to do a lot of postmortems. I think that's great. It's a very good point. So Larry, I'm kind of looking at our our time today. Is there are there any last key points that you want us to? to think about before I jump into our last favorite few questions? Yeah, no, I, uh, I think we covered it real good, Laura. I made a couple of notes here and I just really appreciate you uh, letting me ramble a little bit today. Well, we appreciate your expertise. So it's, it's always valuable to hear from people who are out in the field and, you know, boots dirty every day and working with, with producers and, and pigs and, and getting that perspective is invaluable. So we do appreciate your time. It is time to our famous three. NutriQuest delivers targeted breakthrough solutions to animal producers via nutritional and non-nutritional products, services, and technologies. At NutriQuest, we believe in ingenuity inspired by service and that our success comes from helping producers realize improved profitability through optimized technologies and efficient operations. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. Um, so a couple of things that we like to ask always is you know, what's the favorite swine book that you use? What's your favorite swine resource? Well, I actually, I, I'm old school. I don't think anybody's mentioned this. Maybe they have, but the pork industry handbook. Yes. It's my go-to book. You know, again, I'm old and, um, you know, of course now they have it on a, on a CD, but, um, for the, your listeners that aren't aware of the pork industry handbook, you know, they, I don't know exactly when they first came out, they were, they were started when I first got out of veterinary school and uh, they are the just, they are the best resource to go find when you've got one question about something in nutrition, veterinary medicine, economics, buildings, environment, blah, blah, blah. If you want a quick two or three minute read that will tell you more about that, particular topic that you had a question about, 
I think the pork industry handbook's the best. Very good. Very good. Yeah, I don't have that one yet on my shelf, so I'll have to, no, it's, to look for that one. You know, if you're not familiar with the, I, you know, I, I think a lot of people, I'm always amazed at people I tell about that and they go, Larry, I've never heard of that. And, and if you don't know the format, about, I'm ballparking here, about eight universities went together and put the pork industry handbook together. And each topic is written by, quote, two or three experts and then is reviewed by two or three experts. So you, you really get, you, you get a broad description of whatever that is. Like if you're fertility in boars or estrus in sounds or, you know, how to build a building, you know, it's, it's really good. I, I just think it's really a valuable tool. I've used it forever, forever. Wonderful. Yeah, I'll look into that one. Thanks for the tip. How about a current book that you're reading today that's not pig related? Do you have um, one today? Yeah. So, so I am an avid reader. Um, I plead guilty to that. Um, and I, I just read this book about six months ago. It it was um, it's about three years old, so it's kind of new, but not brand new. But it's called A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived. And I'm a little bit of a history buff, so it caught my attention. It's written by a guy named Adam Rutherford. And it is, it is a book about genetics, DNA, and molecular biology. And I'm just telling you, when you read this book, you know, we are, we're all used to dealing with PCRs. And now the world's, you know, now the whole world understands PCRs. We've known about PCRs. But you are going to just be astounded at the science that is now known about the human genome and our history going back forever and how that whole thing is changing literally by the minute. The author tells you that anything he's telling you is just gonna be added to within the next week because it's, it's such a dynamic field. And it is just an astonishing story that, that you'll just be blown away by. You know, it's, it's a really good one. He's a, he's a great, he's a great writer too. You know, you know, I always say when, when somebody can take really intense science and weave a story with it, you gotta be a really good writer. And he's a, not only is he a great scientist, he's a really good writer. Very good. I'll have to take a look at that one. That sounds very interesting, actually. Um, the last thing I have is um, the last question we always end with is, when you think about a successful professional in the swine industry, could be a veterinarian, nutritionist, farmhand, anybody who you view as a, a successful swine professional, what sets them apart from other people in the industry? Oh, I, th I think they care. You know, they care about what they're doing. They care about the people they're working with. They care about the pigs. And um, that's just what they're they're, if they're not naturals at that, they've developed a habit of being very good at that. And I just think it, it shows in, in the best professionals is that, that they care about the people and the pigs. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's the passion that drives us every morning, right? That's right. Absolutely. Well, I do want to thank you again, Larry, for your time today. Again, this is Dr. Larry Roof from Swine Veterinary Services. Um, we do, again, appreciate your time and look forward to interacting with you in the future. And obviously, if our viewers or listeners have any questions, I'm, are you willing to, to accept any emails or calls to, yeah. to answer questions, I assume? Yeah, I can do that. It's uh, 
Larry Roof at, and that's R-U-E-F-F. Some people might not know that spelling at swinevetservices.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Larry. We wish you all the best. Thanks, Laura. Have a good one. You too. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact by bringing from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of swine nutrition on this seven-week-long elite online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding. It's conducted by myself, Dr. Marcio Gonçalves, and my world-class invited speakers. Additionally, you enjoy an exclusive community to exchange ideas. Go now to www.eliteswinenutritionist.com.